If you'll open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll continue to preach in our series, The Gospel is Life. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll look at um, the entire entire chapter together. I want to read that text to you, and um, I'll assure you on the front end that there are um, many sermons that could be preached from this chapter. Uh, I already had someone remark to me uh, this morning, whose idea was it to preach this whole chapter in one sermon? Uh, and I'll just say it wasn't mine. Um, but I intend to, to do that in a timely manner. First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Grace Church, hear the word of the Lord. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, With most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you, excuse me, I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? All things are lawful, 
but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If the one, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake, I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Let me pray for the preaching of God's word. Father, we pray this morning that your gospel would not come simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Father, don't let your word come to us any other way. And Father, in order that we may receive it, I pray that we would, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We exist to glorify God by treasuring Jesus Christ and spreading his eternal joy. I hope that you've heard that statement before if you're a member at Grace Church because it's our vision statement. We exist to glorify God by treasuring treasuring Jesus Christ and spreading his eternal joy. According to that statement here at Grace Church, we believe you can glorify God in your one little life that God has given you to live. And we say that you can glorify God by treasuring Jesus Christ and spreading his eternal joy. And I believe that today's text would affirm that statement. But perhaps today's text would say it another way. Living for God's glory leads to the salvation of others. I think today's text would say that if we live for God's glory, it will lead to the salvation of others. So in a sense, to be an effective evangelist, you must glorify God with your life. To be an effective evangelist, you must glorify God with your life. Do you want to know how to live a life that glorifies God? 1 Corinthians 10 is before us today to that end. I believe chapter 10 begins the conclusion of Paul's admonition that he began back in chapter 8. The thrust of that admonition is that everything we do ought to be to the glory of God. Everything that we do ought to be to the glory of God. In that simple instruction rests, I believe, the secret to every Christian faith, to every Christian's faith and his works. Paul wants them to be aware of some very important truths that he certainly will address. 
He's trying to tie together the relationship between the people of Israel in Moses' day, particularly those who wandered in the wilderness and the church in Corinth. So we'll find this tie that Paul keeps trying to make throughout the chapter. He's looking back at Moses and the people of Israel who walked through the wilderness. And then he's looking at this little fellowship of believers in the city of Corinth. And he's making connections between the two. And as Paul, no doubt, was familiar with Old Testament history, he sees those connections. But I would like to add to Paul's attempt in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that not only does the connection need to be made between Moses' day and the church in Corinth, but from the church in Corinth to today's church. And so as Paul applies to this little fellowship in the city of Corinth, we must apply to ourselves. So for us, the instruction and application that Paul makes in today's text, it's for us. This is for us. And we want to begin by looking at the warning against Israel's idolatry. The warning against Israel's idolatry that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians Look at the first four verses. He says, For I do not want you to become unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Well, Paul uses these first four verses to paint a picture of the benefits that the people of Israel experienced precisely because God chose them as his people. One of the mistakes that the people of Israel make that you'll see throughout the Old Testament is they thought God chose them because they were special rather than seeing it correctly that they were special only because God had chosen them. Being under the cloud was a statement of being under God's protection. And passing through the sea was a picture reminding God's people of his rescue and deliverance of them. They had benefited greatly from being chosen by God. In the same way, the church has been redeemed by Christ and is safe under his protection. No soul can be removed from the saving hand of God. There's a lot of confidence in that statement. There's not a single soul that God's ever saved that can be pulled out of his firm grip. Paul introduces a baptism in the text that we don't talk about frequently. The baptism of Moses. Stephen did a great job this morning explaining to the church, especially the little children up here at the front, what baptism is. It's a testimony of Christ, his death and resurrection, and that that's true of us. So we're, we're proclaiming to the world when we're baptized that I was buried with Christ and I was raised with him. But Paul introduces the baptism of Moses. And often in Scripture, we see the word baptism. When it's used, it refers to a union. When we're baptized, we're testifying that we've been united with Christ. And Romans 6, the, that we so often quote when we baptize, raised to walk in newness of life, he's talking about that union with Christ that we inexplicably get through Christ's death and resurrection. When we are baptized in churches today, we're symbolizing the union that we now have with Christ in his death and resurrection. We are baptized into fellowship with all the other saints who have placed their faith in Jesus. To be clear, 
Baptism doesn't unite you to Christ, but rather it is symbolic of that union that has already taken place through faith. The baptism of Moses was just a type. It did not carry the benefits of Christ. And though the people of Israel did experience a a rescue from their enemy, in Moses' baptism, they were still born under the law. The law of Moses. Again, this baptism is different than the baptism that we experience. Our spiritual baptism is a baptism into Christ, which, according to Romans, sets us free from the law of sin and death. But the law, under Moses, was weak, incapable of of delivering man from his sin. Now, granted, the law of Moses was only weak because of the flesh of fallen men. That's what was really weak which wars against the Spirit of God's work in our heart. But God does something unique in Christ. He sent His only begotten Son to be born of a woman, to live a life in that weak flesh, but without sin, and to be crucified on a cross, a cross of shame, rendering himself as the once-for-all perfect sacrifice for rebellious sinners like me and you. Taking our sin to the grave that he was buried in, killing sin and death, setting us free from its clutches, and he rose from the grave, imputing to us with the power of new life his righteousness, making us new creatures, to live for him as heirs to the kingdom of God, sealed by the Holy Spirit for himself, where we will enjoy eternal communion with him. Christ is unique in that way. Romans 8 gives us a picture of that. Familiar verses. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So this baptism that we see in these first few verses of Moses is quite different than what we've experienced as believers in Christ Jesus. And the point that Paul's trying to make in 1 Corinthians 10 is there's a parallel to be made between the chosen people of Israel and the people of today. There's a connection. The people of Israel in Moses' day shared a similar baptism, but only in type. And what they experienced in that baptism was only a glimpse of what we would experience in our union with Christ. Ours is much more magnified and intense. And though the people in Moses' day ate a similar meal together, it's not like the meal that we partake in that Rick spoke of just a few minutes ago. Listen to the text again. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. 
I don't know if anyone else is picking up on the hint of the two church ordinances that we practice today, but there they are, staring us in the face, and that was intentional on Paul's part. He wanted the church in Corinth to consider what he was saying. I believe that the warning that Paul is making here is that even though God has set his special blessing on the people of Israel, and as such, that they partook of Moses' baptism, and they ate of the same spiritual food and drink, it is not the baptism or the meal that delivered them when they crossed the Red Sea. In the same fashion, participating in the acts of baptism in the Lord's Supper today do not save a person. You can come today and take the bread and the cup, and that doesn't save you. You can be dipped in those waters that Stephen talked about earlier, and that will not save you. That water only represents what Christ can do in your heart by faith. And that meal that we partake in is only representative of what Christ did for us on the cross. They don't save. And just as someone can partake in these ordinances today, their heart can still be afar from God. And that's exactly what was true of the people of Israel in Moses' day. Though they were under a special blessing from God, their hearts were far from him. They remained in rebellion against him. Look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, that's the people of Israel in Moses' day who were wandering in the wilderness, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. They died in the wilderness. They died in the wilderness. The warning is, being near the blessings of God does not save you. Please hear me. Being here today with the people of God does not save you. Participating in a baptism or partaking of the Lord's Supper does not save you. Being near the blessing of God is not the same as receiving the blessing of God. And we need to make that distinction. Look with me in verse 6. Now these things happened, all this that Paul's talking about in Moses' day, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Now I want you to see that though we may be surrounded by God's blessing, as we mentioned, we are always going to be enticed by the cravings of our own heart. We're always, just like the people of Israel, going to be enticed by the cravings of our own heart. So often we like to blame the things that tempt us on outside forces that certainly do exist. The world has an appeal to it. It has an allure. Satan and his dominion, his, his demons are certainly at work in this realm. But you're only enticed by the desires of your own heart. Every person in this room is enticed by the desires of their own heart so that when you fall prey to sin, it's because you desired that sin. It's because you desired that sin. Even in the midst of great blessing, selfishness will try to compete with God for possession of your heart. Paul then expounds on the details of the people of Israel's selfish sin. He begins to lay it bare. He begins to expose it. He begins to show us in detail what that is. Look with me in verse 7. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. He continues, nor let us act immorally as some of them did. 
and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. He continues, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. He says, don't be idolaters. Do not be idolaters. Idolatry is the worship of something other than God. An extreme admiration, a love for, a reverence for something or, listen to this, someone. That something is actually someone. Let me let you in on a little news here. All idolatry is self-idolatry. That someone is you. You have idols in your life? Do you mean to tell you who those idols serve? They serve you and your desires. You can name all kinds of things that you're tempted by that become idols in your life, but at the end of the day, all those idols serve a God. And that God in your mind is you. You are the biggest idol in your heart. And we may appear to start down the right path, but ultimately our life will prove what we truly worship. It is no wonder that after mentioning idolatry, Paul goes right to immorality. Many a person have fallen guilty to this sin. We're so easily enticed by the desires of our heart. And the story is put on repeat throughout Scripture. If we turn to just about any page in Scripture, we're going to see man falling. And a good bit of the sin that we, we see in Scripture that men fall to is immorality. It's on repeat throughout Scripture, not just the Old Testament, but into the New. And as we followed church history, we would see that it repeats itself again and again and again. As a matter of fact, this is the fifth mentioning of sexual sin in this letter alone, and each time we're told to flee. Immorality is sexual idolatry. And we're warned again and again to flee from it. We also see that the people of Israel were being exposed for trying or testing the Lord. The punishment of the people of Israel was their physical destruction. He warns against testing God. And the final warning that we see in the text is against grumbling. Well, we may have been able to kind of avoid all those other bullets, but I'm guessing the grumble bullet got you. In the wilderness, Israel grumbled about their lack of food, their type of food, the lack of water, the difficulty of traveling in the wilderness. They complained about the leadership of Aaron. They didn't like God's judgment of some of their people who were living in disobedience, whose God, who God's, excuse me, whose life God took. They complained. And they were especially grumbling about the timing of God's giving them the promised land. They knew it shouldn't have taken 40 years. So they grumbled. Philippians 2.14 tells us, 
what we should do about that, do all things without grumbling or disputing or complaining, depending on what, what version you have. Now, I want you to see what Paul says is the purpose behind all these warnings. Why did he get particular with idolatry and immorality and testing God and grumbling? Look with me in verse 11. He says, now these things happen to them. All right, think about the significance of this. Think about the sovereign hand of God at work. Think about his salvific plan and how he's in control of all things and weaving together everything through time. It says, now these things happen to them, the people of Israel, as an example. God let that happen to them as an example for the church in Corinth, as an example for us. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now listen to the next three verses. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Well, I want you to see, he doesn't just warn against Israel's idolatry he doesn't just say you see Israel you see their idolatry don't be guilty of that but he presses in the second thing that I want you to see is the assurance that God gives his people through his faithfulness the assurance of God's faithfulness to us the assurance of God's faithfulness he doesn't just warn us about idolatry that we see visible for us in the story of Israel but we also ought to see the assurance that God gives us based on his faithfulness. Paul says that this was written for our instruction. So what is the instruction? I don't know if you can remember back to elementary school, but I can remember taking a test one time, knowing that I did good on it, being excited to turn that test into the teacher, laid it on her desk, went back to my desk and twiddled my thumbs while other people were finishing their tests. I had done such a good job on that test. Everybody else eventually turns us in. I go to school the next day and I get my test back and I got an F. And I'm looking at the paper thinking, how in the world? I knew all the content. I made a simple mistake that cost me the entire test. I didn't read the first line on the test that gave me instruction to answer the questions differently than the way I'd answered them. It was a simple instruction. It began with a verb, and I missed it all because I didn't read the instruction. I didn't heed the instructions. Did I know the content? I think I did, but I didn't read the instructions. Well, here in the text, we have two very clear, I think, instructions. Number one, take heed that you do not fall. Begins with a verb, right? And the second one is flee from idolatry. Let's not miss the instructions that Paul makes plain to us in 1 Corinthians 10. Look with me in verse 11. He says, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Here comes the instruction. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. 
The people of Israel suffered the fatal consequence of not believing in God and disobeying him. But the warning for us, I think, is much steeper. I think the people in Moses' day, though they suffered a consequence by being laid low in the wilderness, not being able to enter into that physical land that was promised to them, doesn't compare to the consequence that we face if we don't heed the instruction of God. Because of a phrase in verse 11, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul's not talking about missing out on a piece of land that we may possess, but rather missing out on entering into God's eternal rest, his salvation. The end of the ages speaks of Christ's return. And see, the people in Moses' day, they weren't vigilant. They weren't careful to listen to God. They got preoccupied with other things. Idols began to build up in their heart. They began to serve self over God. And they suffered the consequences. And Paul's saying, do you see what they did? Don't make that mistake. And Paul adds to it, and the consequences are steeper for you because I'm talking about eternity. The people of Israel were not vigilant. They thought that they could just stand in their own power. They were confident in themselves, similarly to the way that the Corinthians were confident in their own wisdom. Think back to the first few chapters that we walked through and how they were proud of the wisdom that they thought they possessed but didn't really possess. They were confident in themselves. And so the warning for us is clear. Take heed that you do not fall. Well, there are two types of standing that can take place. If you're not going to fall, you've got to stand. And there's two types of standing that can take place. One, the kind of standing where somebody thinks by his own wisdom and own might that he can stand. And he will certainly fall. The second kind of standing is the one who understands his standing is by the wisdom and power of God. And he knows that his legs are too feeble to stand on his own. And that if God doesn't support him and hold him up and keep him there, he will fall. In both cases, the man will fall unless God intervenes. The first standing is just a thought. And it's a flawed thought at that. The second is depending entirely on God to stand. The first is not giving consideration to the reality of all the dangers to his stance. The second is mindful of that reality, that they must obey God and cling to him. Our standing firm must be a standing firm in the Lord. And we find that Paul calls the people of God in every church just about. If you look at every letter, at some place in that letter, he's going to say, stand firm in the Lord. He's calling them to stand firm in the Lord. Like Peter who's walking on the water, and once he took his eyes off Christ, he began to sink. Listen to me. The moment you take your eyes off Christ, those knees begin to wobble and begin to buckle, and you find out that you're not so strong after all and that you can't stand apart from Christ. But I want you to see the second therefore statement, the second instruction that he gives us. Not only take heed, give attention to God, look to Christ, trust in him so that you don't fall, but he says this, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you'll be able to endure it. 
Therefore, my beloved, here's the second instruction, flee from idolatry. Well, both of these instructions that he gives us follow statements. There's a statement, then he says, therefore, and then he gives us the command. Well, the statement here is verse 13. You see the therefore at the beginning of verse 14 and then the command. I hope you see, tucked away in the middle of verse 13 are three little words that have everything to do with this chapter. God is faithful. It's a promise. You want to find promises of God? Here's one. God is faithful. God is faithful. He does not abandon his people in the midst of temptation to sin. Even if the temptation, listen to this, is quite strong or the situation in which you are tempted is surrounded with all kinds of backstory that would make you especially weak or susceptible to this certain type of sin. Listen to me. God knows all those scenarios. You cannot conjure up a situation in life, no matter what you've been through, you cannot conjure up a situation in life where you can look at God and say, you didn't provide a way out. You weren't faithful. You can never say that. God is faithful, and he will always provide a way of escape. He tells us so in his word. You cannot create a circumstance of temptation nor conceive of a temptation that God is not so faithful to deliver you. Many of us will excuse our actions because of circumstance or situation, but Scripture does not allow it. God's grace is such that he gives believers the resolve to resist the temptation which may beckon them. And they are thus able to withstand the temptation. Listen to me, saints. I'm not talking to you about willpower right now. I'm not talking to you about pulling the bootstraps up. I'm talking to you about depending on the faithfulness of God. I'm talking about appealing to him. I'm talking about confessing to him, my knees are weak. I am so sorely tempted that I will so easily give in. God, if you don't intervene, if you don't do something in such a way to deliver me from this, I will fall. But I trust you because you are faithful and you tell me there's a way out. You tell me there's a way of escape and I have a history I have God's word to see where over and over again he provides a way out for his people. In the Corinthians case, it was the temptation to eat food that had been sacrificed to demonic idols. And that may sound crazy to you. Like, why would they give in to that? What's wrong with them? Our assurance that we will not be overtaken by temptation is in the truth that God is faithful. That was the assurance that he was putting before the people in Corinth. And it's the assurance that he puts before us. Paul tells us the way of escape in verse 13 is to flee, excuse me, verse 14 is to flee idolatry. Listen to me, saints. I can't plead with you enough. I wish I could switch for a second and somebody could come up here and say to me exactly what I'm about to say because I need to hear it again and again. Run from sin. Don't linger. Don't excuse it. Don't see how close you can get to it without sinning. Don't think that you can master it on your own. Don't try to justify it in your heart. Don't accumulate friends who will participate in it with you. Don't find a person 
a denomination or a religion that will embrace your desired sin as acceptable. Forsake your cravings. Quit worshiping yourself and run. Flee from idolatry. Do you want to remain standing firm to endure the temptation that has power to topple your faith and endanger your eternal standing? Then trust the faithfulness of God and flee idolatry. Well, there's a third thing that I want us to see in the text. The third thing that I want us to see is this. Not just the warning against Israel's idolatry or the assurance that God gives us of his faithfulness, but I want you to see he calls us to pursue what is profitable. The pursuit of what is profitable. To pursue what is profitable. In verse 15, Paul says, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. That may seem like it's a little out of place. He's been tearing down this path. And then he says, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Paul, again, plays upon the supposed wisdom of the Corinthians that he alludes to in the first four chapters of this letter. They weren't as wise as they thought they were, but he's still appealing to their wisdom. He's, he's luring them in. You judge what I say. Because he knows in all their wisdom, if they judge what he says, they're going to find that what he says is full of truth. And this is what he says to them. There's two things that we want to do as we pursue what is profitable. First, we want to pursue what profits your soul. We want to pursue what profits our soul, right? That's not selfish. I want to pursue with all my heart, with all my life, anything that's profitable for my soul. That's not selfishness. That's wisdom. And the second is we want to profit, we want to pursue what profits other people's souls. All right, let's look at the first of those. He says in verse 16, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. That's what this table represents over here. Look at the nation of Israel, Paul says. Are not those who eat the sacrifices shares in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become shares in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than he, are we? For time's sake, let me give you a summary of those verses. The food that came from animals that had been sacrificed to demonic idols was viewed as a form of worship to the false gods that were in Corinth, those idols. To knowingly eat of this food was to worship that idol. To go to these temples knowing that this food had just been sacrificed to an idol and then to participate in that meal with those pagans was idol worship. Perhaps these were the best restaurants in Corinth. Thus the temptation to eat a meal at the temple 
let's be honest, we're not talking about pagan temples right now, but when we hear about a new restaurant in Memphis that everybody's talking about, what do we want to do? We want to go try the food. Well, let's not beat the Corinthians up too bad because every one of us have physical appetites and we have palates that enjoy good food. And they were tempted to go to these places to eat the good food that they were hearing about. Verse 21 seems to be the crux of Paul's argument here. God will not allow you to pretend to worship while you're actually worshiping another idol. He won't pretend. God won't let you pretend to be worshiping him when you're paying homage to somebody else. He just won't do that. This kind of behavior obviously provokes the anger of the Lord, as Paul alludes to at the end of the text, and his wrath is nothing to be trifled with. That's why we're looking back at the Old Testament. That's why he's saying, remember Moses? Remember how gracious God was to those people that he delivered them, that he protected them with a cloud, that he caused them to cross the sea? Remember those miracles and how much God blessed those people? But guess what? They began to serve themselves. They began to worship other idols. We know that they even crafted one. And the punishment of that was God laid low that generation in the wilderness. He's saying, don't forget that. Don't forget that. The Old Testament is laced with God's judgment for idolatry. However, the argument for some is this is just food because the idols they worship are not real gods. Therefore, the food is not unclean and they didn't see it as a form of worship against their God. That's the argument that they would use. And that's where their lacking of consideration of what is profitable for others comes into the picture. First and foremost, you ought to pursue what's profitable for your soul. But in doing that, it'll never conflict with the the second pursuit, which is what is profitable for other people's souls. Look with me in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Psalm 24, 1. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if any one of you, excuse me, but if anyone says to you, this is the meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? It's a rhetorical question. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? If people are going to be wrinkled, upset about my actions, let it be because of the gospel, not my freedoms or my preferences. If somebody's going to be upset with me, let it be because of Christ in me. Let it be because I am not ashamed to preach the good news of Jesus Christ and to live a life that exemplifies that to everybody around me. But I should not, listen to me, I should not let my freedoms and my preferences that I may have in Christ cause another brother to stumble. And a lack of consideration in this part is an evidence of sin 
Consider the effects that your actions may have on others. I love the diagnostic questions that I believe verse 23 creates. Is this profitable? Ask yourself that. Is this profitable? Is it profitable for me? Is it profitable for others? If the answer is yes, then do it to the glory of God. But if the answer is no, then I appeal to you. Refrain. And the second question, is this edifying? Is this edifying for me? Is this edifying for others? If so, do it to the glory of God. If it's not, again, I appeal to you. Refrain. Well, I want us to give attention before we close to the last three verses that provide, I think, a tremendous amount of practical application and I believe to be the main point of the last three chapters that we've been preaching on. So that those sermons Jordan preached and the one Nathan preached, I think they all come down to this. Look with me in verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The eating and drinking the food offered to idols was certainly an important topic to the church in Corinth, but it's just the occasion that Paul uses to communicate a more ultimate truth that whatever we do, we should do to the glory of God. That whatever we do, we should do to the glory of God. This general principle applies to every arena of life. It really is all-encompassing. God has not commanded us to pursue our own interests, but to consider what brings Him glory, Him honor, Him praise. And if we would act according to this principle, it would save the need for much of what Paul has to write about in his letter to the church in Corinth, and quite honestly, it would resolve a lot of problems that we, that we have as a church if we all would live to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Doing all things for God's glory would correct wrong thinking. It would remove the cloud of doubt from believers' minds. It would change the stewardship of your resources. It would relieve confusion from difficult decisions it would change the joy in your heart and it would warm your relationship to other people if you live to the glory of God in fact living for the glory of God is inextricably tied to living for the good of others the call to live to the glory of God is not abstract but practical look with me in verse 32 give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God let me tell you how to do that live to the glory of God and if you live to the glory of God, then you're consider all these groups, the Jews, the Greeks, the church, who all wanted different things. How do you please people who want different things? Live to the glory of God. To live for the glory of God changes our conduct toward others, listen to this, within our home. I'm talking about at your house, your spouse, your children. It changes all that. When you live to the glory of God, it changes our conduct toward other people in our home. It changes our conduct in the workplace or school, in our neighborhoods, to the nations, and in the life of this church. Living for God's glory should promote faith in Christ in all people. That's why I said at the beginning of the sermon, you want to be an effective evangelist? Live to the glory of God. Look with me in verse 33, and this is where we finish. Paul says, just as I also please all men in all things, that sounds really similar to what he said back in chapter 9, 
not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many. Now, that's not contradictory to the profit that I told you to pursue earlier. But listen to this last phrase. So that they may be saved. So that they may be saved. What do we exist for? To glorify God. That's why we exist. How do we do that? By treasuring Jesus Christ. By admitting that our knees are weak. We're feeble and we can't stand our own. So we must fix our eyes on Christ. By treasuring Jesus Christ. And spreading His eternal joy. How do we spread His eternal joy? We live to the glory of God. We glorify God by treasuring Jesus Christ. Living for God's glory is the humility to not live for self, but to consider others' interests above our own. Living to God's glory undoubtedly leads to the salvation of others. And I can say that with confidence because that's what verse 33 says. And all we have to do is look to Jesus as the perfect example of somebody who lived to the glory of God. This is what I'll finish with. Philippians chapter 2, 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That attitude is an attitude of living to the glory of God. Now listen to this. Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess, listen to this, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray.